It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Hassan as floodwaters rise down the riverbank. We speak to charity workers active in the region and bring you the latest reaction from around the world, a day on from the destruction of the Novohakovka Dam. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday. The 7th of June, one year and 103 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, and our guests are Yuri Tokarski, CEO of the UHARTS Foundation, a charity focused on helping animals, and Olya Hercules, author and chef from Hachovka. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Hopefully you can hear me. I've had some technical issues there. Okay, let's start with the dam. So uh, President Zelensky has said that tens of thousands of people remain stranded in the area along the Dnipro River, and hundreds of thousands have been left without access to normal drinking water. Ukraine says 42,000 people are at direct risk of flooding, and more than 2,700 have been evacuated from both sides of the Dnipro River. Now, I'm not sure how they come to that figure, given that the left bank, and remember, we talk about rivers in in terms of the direction they're flowing. So if you're, if you're in the river, flowing down the river, the left bank, um, in this case, is to the south and east, and the right bank is to the north and west, the r- river flowing, obviously, from the centre of Ukraine into the Black Sea, so left and right banks. Uh, obviously, Russian forces holding the left bank, Ukraine, on, on the right. So I don't quite know how... Ukraine can come up with that figure. TASS, so Russia's state, one of Russia's state news agencies, said that 900 people have been evacuated from the village of uh, Novokokovka. That's a city on the left-hand side, the left bank, that gives the dam its name. It's a city of 45,000, but 900 evacuated there. The governor of Ukraine's Kherson region, Alexander Pokudin, he said that, well, just over 1,500 houses have been flooded on the right bank, 
and almost 1,500 people were evacuated last night out of that total, like I say, 2,500. Mr. Pakudin also said that Russian forces were shelling the region numerous times over the day as, as the flooding was was occurring. At least one death reported there. Now, if you were watching Channel 4 News last night, you might be able to see it on Catch Up, but Porrick O'Brien's report, very good report there from, from the city. You can hear, as he's doing his report and he's interviewing people, you can hear explosions in the background, which he said were incoming Russian artillery shells. We've got no way of, what, no way of verifying that. But, you know, Porrick O'Brien, a very good journalist, so um, I think he's a trustworthy source. Today's British military intelligence update said that the dam's structure is likely to to deteriorate further over the next few days, which will cause additional flooding. And on social media, um, journalist Michael Weiss, he has shown his own film of fish scattered ashore in the village of Mariansk. So this is about 75 kilometres back upstream from the dam, halfway towards the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. So on the right-hand bank, the the Ukrainian-held bank of the Kokovka Reservoir. I tweeted out Michael's Michael's TikTok about just over an hour and a half ago, so you'll see it in in my timeline, if not his. Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Kubrakov uh, he was visiting the area yesterday. He warned of the danger posed by floating mines. There is footage on social media showing mine, or an explosion in the water, which is said was a, a mine um, hitting some of the debris in the water. So um, Deputy Prime Minister warning of floating mines that have been unearthed by the by the flooding. It also warns of the spread of disease and hazardous chemicals as he was as he was in the area. Now, Inu Igor uh, Soryota, who's the head of Ukraine's main hydropower generating company, he was interviewed last night. He said that the peak flood should be about, well, happening about now. His, his time frame was, was sort of lunchtime-ish, late morning lunchtime today. So peak flood should be about now. And he suggested water levels should start to subside in the next two to three days. And he estimates minimal water in the river in about, in about 10 days' time. So, yeah, we obviously will will update that. Just before I pause and we go elsewhere, just to bring up to date with some other bits and pieces, Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister Hanna Maliash has said that in the Bakhmut region, Ukraine troops still transitioning from defensive to the, to the offensive and are making gains around Bakhmut. And finally, Australia is in discussions with the US and Ukraine about sending its 41 retired F-18 Hornet fighter jets to Ukraine. This was reported yesterday by the uh, by Australian Financial Review. But I will let you come in there. Tom, you've given us some of the updates from today, but you've been having a few strategic thoughts as well. Yeah, I've just been thinking about um, what the attack means, or I'll come on to whether or not I think it's an, an attack or not in a, in a moment. But I think the destruction of the dam shows four things, which I, I was chatting to all of you earlier on. Be interested in your thoughts here. But number one, so we, in many ways, we feel very close to the Second World War as the commemorations for the 79th anniversary of D-Day yesterday show. But in other areas, there is a huge distance between where we are now, 2023, and the Second World War. Francis was talking briefly yesterday about the Dam Busters Raid, 1943 Dam Busters Raid, held in great sort of cultural affection in Britain. Now, that those raids would not be allowed today. They were... Uh, with the Geneva Conventions, they became such acts became a war crime in 1949. Now, I'm not dancing on the head of a pin here and saying, well, that means they weren't a war crime because it wasn't 1949. It's a different time and place and context in humanity. And I think we, as, as grown-up adults, or most of us anyway, present in the room, we're able to carry a number of different thoughts in our head 
at the same time. So we are able to carry the thought that it was the context of that time and the bravery of the air crews, but also the idea that humanity has moved on and evolved, most of us, such that such action is seen as abhorrent today. Just because it's been done once doesn't confer legitimacy on the action. You know, we can talk about atomic atomic you know, the, the Nagasaki and Hiroshima blast there so you know we we do need to um we do need to discuss the dam busters right or just you know mark it and move on think about it I'm I'm amazed again at the incompetence of the Russian information campaign that they've not leapt on this and gone ah right it was all right for you in 1943 blah 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 but yeah we should mark the dam busters raid acknowledge that it would not happen today but also as I say that shows how far humanity has moved on but what this attack has also done by flooding that area I think for the short to medium term, it has utterly removed the ground threat to Mykolaiv and Odessa and that part of southern Ukraine. The chances of Russia, the Russian army performing a massive left hook to get across the river, swing west to Odessa, is now it's gone. Right, But I think with that ground threat gone, let's say short and medium term, put a figure on that, you know, months at least, I think Russia will now launch even more drone and missile strikes against the area, particularly Odessa, as a kind of up yours, because they can't do anything else. But I expect caliber missiles from Black Sea Fleet, other drone strikes and what have you, against Odessa. And I also expect them to bugger about with the grain deal again. Yeah, just anything to just mess, try and mess mess the place up. So large threat, I think, to Odessa and the southern coast, Mykolaiv, gone. But I would anticipate an uptick in the next few days of air attack against that area third thought i've been having let's have a brief chat about the levels of military action so tactical action when we talk about tactics tactical action these are small local battles they can be incredibly violent i don't mean to diminish their their violence but they are they are limited by geography or purpose you then have next level up is operational these are kind of larger battles or sequences of battles generally designed to take Big chunks of land based on a significant objective like a major city or an industrial area or an air or or seaport or perhaps an area of ground that dominates the surrounding area like high ground or a coastline or riverbank, etc. Then you have strategic and the strategic level are those big, major war changing actions, which could be geographic. Think back to the Second World War. Do the Allies go through France and down or in Italy and up? Big, big, big bits of geography or uh, it could be a change in the dynamic of the war, and this could include the use of new weapons, i.e. the introduction of the atomic bombs in the Second World War. Now, politics runs through everything, of course, but is po- politics are almost irrelevant at the tactical level, pretty much at the operational level too. But at the strategic level, I mean, there's no no figures to be put on this, but you know, if I had to have my arm twisted by Roland over there, you know, I'd say it's 50-50, military and political issues to be discussed to, to direct the strategic level. This event, the dam failing, is a strategic event. Let's have a look at the military, a possible military response. What could Ukraine do? Let's say they fire a dozen storm shadow missiles, which all hit their targets, destroy headquarters, fuel depots, damage storage sites. I mean, that would be a big military response, but it, it's not equivalent. There is no real military equivalent response to this without going very, very big. You know, I'm talking nuclear. So very little military response possible here, I suggest. The equivalence would come from the political side, I'm suggesting. So when I hear Britain's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak say that if it's proved to be, uh, this was proved to be a Russian strike, that would be a what he said was a new low by Moscow. 
and he says the explosion is the largest man-made disaster in Europe for decades. I go, well, yeah, but yes, Prime Minister, those are facts. They're not strong words detailing consequences. When I hear Martin Griffiths, a senior UN official, warning the Security Council yesterday of grave and far-reaching consequences for thousands of people on both sides through the loss of homes, food, safe water and livelihoods. And he said the sheer magnitude of the catastrophe will only become fully realised in the coming days. Again, I say, yeah, and? And as long as the UN is referencing grave and far-reaching consequences as an environmental issue and not what should happen to Russia, I say Moscow's got away with this. Now, I hold Russia responsible, back to what I was saying a moment ago. I hold Russia responsible. I've not yet decided if I think it was deliberate military action or incompetence of the inability, sheer inability to run a plant. That is irrelevant. Okay, I view them as being responsible and we must not let them bed in the narrative that there were unusually high water levels, damage to the dam and all that kind of stuff. They held it. They're responsible for its safe operation. Now, it suits them tactically for this to have happened. The strategic momentum at the, at the moment is with Ukraine. This, as one of my favourite phrases, this shakes the snow dome. So I think it was Russia. I say deliberate or, um, or author incompetence. It suited them. I hold them responsible. And I said earlier on that the, the, the Dam Busters raid shows how far we are from the Second World War. Well, the UN was established in the ashes of that war and has so far shown itself to be out of date. It was built for the world of 80 years ago. And I, I, I question its relevance today. It's time now, today, right now, for the UN to step up. We need to have a conversation about structures, about processes, about the P5, about representation from the global south. And I think a good point to start would be to ask whether Russia should remain on the UN Security Council. Because, fourth point, last point, Russia will watch this global response and will be watching with interest how seriously we collectively view such massive environmental action, if you like, for whatever clunky phrase you want to use, that confers a limited tactical advantage, maybe only kills a small number of people, but results in enormous environmental damage. Because whether or not this was intended, and you know, hey, may, maybe the five drunken idiots in charge of the plant are on, the, on their way right now to the Bakhmut front line, I don't know. But, you know, deliberate or incompetence, Russia will take any disinterest from the world as a green light to do it again. And you know, when are we going to learn that they push, 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 unless and until they're punched in the face? Any muted response to this increases the risk, I would suggest, of a small accidental release of radiation from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant and ultimately increases the risk of the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. So this is the moment, UN. This is when you say, right, enough is enough. This cannot be allowed to happen. These environmental events, however caused, blah, 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 stop. It just stops right here, right now. We need to make a stand. We need to grow up. 80 years ago, in many ways, feels like yesterday, but in many ways, and I'm suggesting these are the ones we should concentrate on, it is a very, very long time ago and humanity has moved on. Thank you, Dom. We'll go to our guest, Olia Hercules, later, just after Francis Sternley. Francis, you've been listening to everything Dom has been saying. What's your response? What would you like to add? Thanks, David. I want to start by echoing what Dom has just said. I would argue that the destruction of the dam is an abject failure of the international community. And I don't just mean the West when I say that. China's also expressing regret at what's happened, though unsurprisingly doesn't state who it thinks is responsible. This is what happens when there are no clear red lines. 
As we've said before, arguably the only reason the post-war consensus has held is the red line of Article 5 in NATO, with an attack on one being an attack on all. Russia has not broken that, and dare not. But I see no reason why there couldn't be similar red lines in Ukraine with clear consequences if they are broken. There was ample opportunity for the UN or NATO to state explicitly what they would do if this dam were destroyed by Russia, whether that be sanctions, weapons, the delivery of F-16s to Ukraine. Perhaps that should have been the strategy all along, threatening to support Ukraine further and to try and prevent escalation instead of the uncoordinated way in which deliveries have been made. And I know some will say that it would incentivize Ukraine to blow up the dam, for instance. But that is why one would have international observers on the ground, something that Zelensky requested back in October for the dam, but which did not happen. This is a vital moment. The UN and NATO surely have to act. Russia is watching, as Dom says, if they're able to get away with this seemingly without consequence, then I am convinced they will consider other options as on the table, not least the triggering of some kind of nuclear incident at Zaporizhia or, God forbid, the use of chemical weapons or tactical nukes. Powers have to now state explicitly what their red lines are around certain escalations, red lines that Russia dare not cross. Instead, almost unbelievably, the UN spent yesterday tweeting about it being Russian language day with no mention of the attack on the dam. The fact is, today is already too late. But if it has to be today that the international community alters its approach, then today has to be better late than never. But anyway, rant over. There have been some notable developments since our broadcast yesterday. As Dom says, we are getting a much better sense of the impact of this now with shocking images of entire towns as far as the eye can see submerged and entire shorelines of dead fish scattered ashore. President Zelensky has tweeted this morning, Russian terrorists have once again proved they are a threat to everything living. The destruction of one of the largest water reservoirs in Ukraine is absolutely deliberate. At least 100,000 people lived in those areas before the invasion. At least tens of thousands are still there. Hundreds of thousands have been left without normal access to drinking water. Our services, all those who can help people, are already involved, but we can only help on the territory controlled by Ukraine. On the part occupied by Russia, the occupiers are not even trying to help people. This once again demonstrates the cynicism in which Russia treats the people whose land it has captured and what Russia really brings to Europe and the world. The Secretary of State of Ukraine's National Security and Defence Council has also named a Russian unit it claims blew up the dam, namely the 205th Motorised Rifle Brigade. We spoke yesterday about some of the Western reaction, and I think it's fair to say that they're pretty incredulous. The EU's top diplomat has said that Russia's attacks against Ukrainian civilian critical infrastructure reached an unprecedented level. He said the EU condemns this attack in the strongest possible terms. It represents a new dimension of Russian atrocities and may constitute a violation of international law, notably international humanitarian law. 
there have been similar responses across the world. Uh, another interesting development is that Zelensky said he received a serious, powerful offer from leaders of countries ready to provide Kyiv with F-16 fighter jets and is awaiting final agreements with key allies. As Dom said, we believe that Australia are involved in those conversations. He said, our partners know how many aircraft we need. I've already received an understanding of the number from some of our European partners. It is a serious, powerful offer. Kyiv now awaits a final agreement with its allies, including a joint agreement with the United States. And now it's interesting, I think, that the United States are mentioned there. One slightly concerning development overnight is that the Republican House Speaker has threatened to block further funding for Ukraine. So Kevin McCarthy has warned that an extra US spending package for Ukraine is not going anywhere in the House of Representatives, halting any immediate plan to send more money to Kyiv. It came after the Senate passed a debt deal negotiated by Mr. McCarthy and President Biden to cut U.S. spending, avoiding a default with the support of defense hawks in the chamber. The Fiscal Responsibility Act includes $886 billion for defense spending in the next fiscal year, a figure defense hawks in the Senate felt was inadequate. They supported the deal after assurances by the Senate's Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, and its top Republican, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell sorry, that it would not prevent them passing separate defence funding bills before and beyond the agreement's $886 billion. However, Mr McCarthy has now signalled his chamber has no plans to take up legislation that would boost military aid to Ukraine beyond the levels agreed in the deal. So the Speaker is under intense pressure, of course, from the party's right flank who are furious that he relied on Democratic votes to secure passage of the spending deal. Some have threatened to revolt and trigger a vote to oust Mr McCarthy from his position in response. As previously discussed, the House's most right-wing members have advocated ending military support to Ukraine, lamenting the billions of dollars the US is spending as the American public faces economic uncertainty. Now, I don't wish to over-egg the pudding here. After all, there is widespread support amongst Republicans and Democrats for arming Ukraine across Congress. But stories like this do incentivize Russia to keep the war going as long as possible so that support will Ukraine will eventually dry up and on the understanding that it will dry up. But those are the major stories today, David. I'll have some more thoughts on the historical parallels for the final thoughts. Roland, can I come to you next? Um, Obviously, you've been covering the story all week. What are some of your updates? We're currently trying to speak to as many people as possible on the the left bank, that's the the Russian-occupied bank, because, well, for two reasons, really. One is because basically the damage is much worse there because, as we discussed yesterday, that's basically the geography of the entire Dnipro. Generally, the right bank is higher than the the left bank and it's it's always been i mean since the war began it's become progressively more difficult to report from occupied areas it used to be quite simple you could call people up and things like that but that's become more and more difficult signal comes and goes things like this we 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 will have a report tonight in tomorrow's paper with with comments from those people at the moment what i can tell you is that there's plenty of confirmation that the flooding on that low-lying that that low-lying bank is is i mean it's it's dramatic i mean a lot of it comes from a, a place called aleshki or aleshki depending if you're using the ukrainian or russian pronunciation it's um it's actually a very ancient town i mean it's been there a thousand years so in theory if the river returns to its previous level what it was before the um the dam was built it should re-emerge but at the moment it is basically 
all that's left is roofs sticking out of the water. Quite confused, I would say, reports, contradictory reports about uh, what the Russian authorities are doing there. We've had some reports that the Russian army itself in the area was taken by surprise. So if the Russians did this, they either didn't warn their own men or, or, or failed to coordinate or something. Others, other, you know, some, some people who have relatives there saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the, the Russian army knew, but they didn't bother telling anybody. I mean, I spoke to a woman yesterday who has an uncle who lives on, on, the, on the left bank. Um, that was her account that no one, no, no civilian was given any kind of warning by the, the Russian occupation authorities that this might happen. Some reports unconfirmed that Russian forces have refused to allow people to evacuate from those areas. Now, some of those look quite patchy to me, and I'm, I'm not, it doesn't, at the moment, I wouldn't be able to say that that's definitely what is happening. But what is clear is that people seem to be relying on themselves. So people are getting on boats, trying to get themselves out where they can. There is, there is one Ukrainian volunteer organization says that they actually rode across the river to get people out which is quite bold, and there is a, a Ukrainian, um, I think it's an artillery brigade, who say that they sent their drone over to deliver some some water to a stranded person um, sitting on a roof in that village. But interestingly, while we're trying to get into this and, and find out just what is going on over there, I started looking at some maps. I was quite curious about the history, and I think in the long term, I think a lot of this area should should recover. I was looking at a map from, from, from the 1940s, from the 1950s, old Soviet and also American maps of the area. A lot of places, particularly I mean, places that we're talking about, like Aleshki, they have been there for hundreds of years, and they're built on very low rises. So this is a place that's only normally six metres above sea level. But because the Black Sea is not tidal, that, that, that was sustainable. So... If the floodwaters recede, which they probably will, I think probably we will see a lot of these towns rebuilt. But as I, as I was saying yesterday, really the, the, the long-term environmental consequences, the impact on the geography is going to take weeks, months, years to unfold. Thank you very much, Francis Dom and Roland. Very happily, I'm gl- very glad to say both of our guests have managed to make it on to the space. Can we talk to you separately? Uh, Yuri Tukarski, I believe you're on the space. You can hear us. Could you just introduce yourself again? Tell us a little bit about your charity and what you're seeing on the ground in Herzog. Yes. Hi, everyone. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for this opportunity to share what's happening on the ground as we are responding with a humanitarian effort our charity is called the UHARS Foundation, and we implement the initiative to help and save pets and animals who are suffering from the war. We've been doing this disaster response uh, that we call Safe Pets of Ukraine since the war broke off last February. And when we heard the news that uh, the disaster happened in Kherson and the major evacuation is underway, uh, we started to help by dispatching volunteers and by providing pet food, by providing kennels, carriers, and leashes to aid the effort to evacuate uh, pets, to help people who are fleeing the area with their animal. And of course, the scale of the disaster is huge. We have at least 17,000 households who are directly affected and who need to be evacuated. And in many of these households, people kept domestic animals, people kept pets, 
And one of the most common problems, unfortunately, that was happening since yesterday is that many of dogs, especially who were on the leash or on the chain in their kennels, they drowned. Many of them were not rescued or their hosts, their families were not able to rescue them or to take them with them as they were leaving their homes. There is also a number of people, unfortunately, who did not want to leave their homes, who thought, and still there are those who still think it may be just an issue of a couple of days and then uh, the water levels will go down and they will be uh, able to wait it out. And unfortunately, in many cases, uh, they were stuck in their homes. In many cases, their animals, their pets, cats and dogs are saving themselves on the roofs and volunteers have to navigate in small boats and try to bring these animals to safety. So this is the situation that's really unfolding. The first evacuated families are already arriving to other cities, also in the central and western parts of the countries. And we are also helping with resettling and finding places in shelters for homeless animals who are being evacuated from that area. Thank you very much, Yuri, for that overview there. For you and your charity's work, what do the next few days and weeks look like? Out of interest, what do you, in terms of supplies, what do you lack at the moment? What, what are you really looking for in terms of support? Right now, the most urgently needed items are transportation cages and pet food, pet supplies, such as cat litter. We do have some stock available. But as the situation is going to unfold, we anticipate that we will be getting much more requests for aid in volume. So we are really looking to procure right now as much as we can, because this situation is unfortunately going to impact us and our charity's work for at least weeks, maybe months to come, as we are not sure when the people will be able to return back to their homes. And when we're talking about the outlook for us, of course, right now, the most important thing is uh, to respond immediately to this disaster, to evacuate the animals and their families, to bring people and pets to safety. But once that stage is over, then really the mid to long-term issues start to pick in. And what we try to do a lot, we work on adoption. We promote adoption of pets. We promote adopting them both in Ukraine and in some cases there are interested families who are taking the animals outside of the country. So that line of work would be really important for us, as well as potentially medical veterinary treatment of those animals who were injured because of the flooding. And for those homeless animals who were rescued and for whom we do not know their prior vaccination history, vaccination to prevent the potential spread of diseases such as rabies is also a very important priority that we're dealing with. Thank you very much, Yuri. Just one more question from me before we go to Olia Hercules. Yuri, after the destruction of the dam yesterday, it does feel like a, a huge, I mean, there's a huge rescue effort underway of which you're part could you give us a sense of just how massive the 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 outpouring of aid and energy is towards the region it's really an ongoing process since yesterday morning and i am always very surprised and amazed by the by the level of response how quickly 
people, volunteers, just are able to jump into their cars, load up their cars with aid and move on site. So we sent already aid and we sent four groups of volunteers just in one day. And we are expecting more to depart also in the course of the day. And we think that this effort, and this is just a volunteer effort, is really overwhelming. So the solidarity of the people is huge. There is an ongoing flash mob on the social media where people advertise places in their homes, people who are ready to take in families with pets who are being evacuated. Shelters are sharing information with each other. So this is really a massive and very popular response that we see right now. Yuri Tukowski, thank you so much for joining us. That was really interesting to hear about your work and best of luck with the uh, with the rescue operations. Thank you so much for joining us. Olia Hercules, can I bring you in here? Olia, we've obviously talked to you on this podcast before, but would you just introduce yourself again and just explain your connection with, with the affected region? Hi, thank you for having me back. Yeah, my name is Olia Hercules. I am a UK-based author and chef and activist. And... Um, my connection to the area is that I was born there and, and I lived there, you know, most of my childhood until I was about 13. And my, But my family has, has been there for the, the whole time and they, they evacuated last April when Kahovka was occupied and my family started receiving threats from the occupiers. However, I still have some friends remaining in Kahovka. Unfortunately, I don't have any communication with them that's disappeared of a, a month and a half ago but yeah so that's my sorry now a bit long there not at all as i said to yuri we're seeing a huge upswell of support and aid from across ukraine and elsewhere for, for the region what's your take on that i mean yuri talked about it being um you know it was an amazing sense of solidarity how do you see it yeah, absolutely. From what I see, you know, we're all, all of us, whether we are from the area or not, there's a huge network online and we're trying trying to help each other. But the, the biggest problem is the occupied area. I mean, it's apocalyptic. I've got a friend from New Kahovka and she's in touch with her family who is there right now. And they're saying that it's particularly bad in um, in Oleshki and, uh, and the nearby villages. They're saying that there's bodies floating in the in the water and people are stuck on the roofs and the occupiers are not helping them and that urgent help and intervention is is needed there she she asked me to 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 urge anyone who is listening red cross anyone who has access to occupiers or has any kind of communication with the russian forces they they need they need to to go in and and help out because it's catastrophic Olya, as you said, you're from the region. Could you talk us through your initial reaction when you saw the news yesterday morning that this that this had happened? I, you know, it's it's the same feeling I think as when uh, when the war, uh, the big war broke out on uh, on the 24th of February. So you know, a, a feeling of of shock and and grief and and just knowing how how this feeling is going to fold out because we've been through it again. But of course, it's. Ah, oh, it's really difficult to explain. It's uh, we're we're kind of like going from feeling completely numb to anger to devastation. It's um, yeah, just realizing that the suffering that the people and animals are going through, and that some of the places are lost forever, and how the area's uh, biome and environment is damaged irreversibly. It's it's really hard to to take in. 
Dom and Francis earlier spoke about the international reaction to to what's happened. I saw you, you you put a video out on this yesterday. What do you think? What are your thoughts on what we've seen so far from the international bodies, and what do you think needs to happen? Uh, I think this is an equivalent of using weapons of mass destruction, and it's huge. It, it's it's. I think that the reaction should be a lot stronger. I think that this really is that kind of limit. Like you can't, if we let them get away with this, that's it. We, we, we can expect anything. I honestly, before I thought, oh, they wouldn't do it because it's always been a, a, a threat. We always knew that they might do this, but I just thought they just can't be that stupid. But unfortunately, this is it. This is a combination, this lethal cocktail of stupidity, lack of empathy and menace that the that they're showing and um and i and i'm scared i'm i'm scared that they 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 can do more even though this already is is absolutely huge and you know it's not the first time the 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 soviets did it to us in the 1950s when they built the dam and uh it's repeating again actually for the past year i've been researching my local history quite intensely and i interviewed my family who lived through the construction of the dam in the 50s and i spoke to ukrainian environmentalists and it was huge in the 1950s when they built the dam and the reservoir about 2000 villages were flooded people were given just 3 days to pack up their things and leave so 30,000 people were were evacuated from from their homes and they lost their homes they lost their you know everything that they grew they were mostly most of them were peasants so it was another way to suppress peasants again uh, they were relocated into you know high khrushchevka high rises and made to work in factories etc but also the environment was completely ruined there were these beautiful uh, dnipro floodplains and and the steppe and it's all been flooded and uh, some of some of it obviously has uh, kind of recovered a little bit and we've got a new thing going and 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 now it's repeating again they're flooding us again and this time people didn't even get a warning Olia, can I ask, we don't know at this point how much of this place is going to survive, but what, what if, if you were looking back, what, what, will you, what were the positives for you? What will you always remember? What would you want listeners to know about the region that you grew up in before this, this huge environmental crime? Just the beauty of it, you know, whatever did remain from the destruction of the 1950s, some of those floodplains, the Dnipro floodplains, did survive. And that were they were outstanding places of beauty of this beautiful nature, you know, loads of lily pads and kind of jungle like river shores and loads of wildlife. And um, we used to go there and uh, you know go canoeing and and have little picnics. And I just posted a video of uh, my husband and my son in 2016. You know, and my mom and my best friend sitting in these uh, plavni in these floodplains and just admiring, just having one of the best days of my life. And uh, Yesterday, my cousin said that uh, this place called called uh, Krinke is gone. It's been flooded, and I, I, I don't know what's going to be left of it. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. But I hope that people can have a peek and and just see how beautiful it was, and just how devastating this disaster really is. Olia, just one more question from me. You've you talked a little bit about some of the aid efforts in the region. Is there, is there anything in particular you'd want to mention for our listeners? I think, as uh, Yuri mentioned, on the you know on the unoccupied territory, people are doing such an amazing job already. 
I'm supporting a charity called Legacy of War, who, whose Ukrainian partners are on the ground and trying to evacuate people. So there's links to, to, to send them some funds on my on my Instagram and on Twitter as well. But it's the most the most crucial thing right now is for everyone to shout and to urge some kind of a very urgent intervention in the occupied areas where people and animals do not have any help at all. And actually, you know, they're not only not helped by occupiers, but they're also prevented from saving themselves. It's just heartbreaking seeing, you know, going into chat rooms and just seeing all of these people asking for help. It's unbearable. So we need urgent action. And please, anyone who's listening, if if you can shout about it and just, just don't forget about it and just try to figure out how to get help into the occupied area. Oliath Hercules and Yuri Tukovsky, thank you very much, both of you, for your time. Before we finish, Roland, Francis, and Dom, any final updates or thoughts from any of you? We, we just have had, uh, and Natasha has managed to get through to someone from, from Areski, so this is, this is from someone who's been in touch with her parents-in-law. They were lucky to escape. They say there's been no organised effort to evacuate civilians. This is what we're being told. This is Aleshki, the, the town we were just talking about. It's been very badly inundated on the left bank. People have been sitting on the rooftops. No help was coming. In the end, it was just random people with dinghies who helped people out. They're on their own. The Russians are saying they're organising an evacuation, but where are the boats? Why did no one send in the boats for them? They've been calling the Russian emergency services, but residents haven't had any response. That's 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 pretty much it. What they know. So so people trying to save themselves and yeah, basically struggling to get any response, as far as we can tell, from from the Russians. Thank you very much, Roland, for that update. Let's go to our final thoughts then. Francis Dunley, do you want to start? Thanks, David. I offered some historical examples yesterday of dams being destroyed in the Second World War. And following that, the Foreign Desk asked me to write a piece expanding on it and offering further examples, which we'll put in the description for this episode. I'm grateful to Roland for telling me about when the Chinese destroyed dikes along the Yellow River as part of their scorched earth strategy to hamper the Japanese. It killed tens of thousands of civilians, and I wasn't really aware of it and that's the thing about the world wars just when one thinks one has a grasp on it one learns about some horrific event that is sometimes little more than a footnote in the history books i wanted to end however by reiterating what dom was saying earlier and that is around the dam busters raid of 1943 and a response to those who say how can one commemorate that whilst condemning the destruction of the dam yesterday as dom said i think the second world war was a different historical context we forget that we are now living in the moral cultural and legal universe spawned from the rubble of that war bodies like the un were set up to ensure that such attacks on civilian infrastructure would not be permitted in wars ever again War crimes today were often not considered so in the 1940s, at least in a legal context. So I too don't believe it's necessarily contradictory to hold those who served in bomber command, like my great uncle Hubert, who was killed on a bombing mission attacking the battleship Nassau over Germany the day after his 27th birthday, in high regard, whilst also acknowledging that it would not happen according to the rules of war today. That is why, as we were saying earlier, the UN has to step up. It needs to realise that it is there not to comment on events like a spectator, but to shape them. It is an architect 
of our moral universe, our form of life, one that is created in order to ensure the suffering of the 20th century never happened again. So when I see its officials lamenting the environmental disaster of yesterday's attacks and not going any further in their condemnation, I urge them to recognise their own importance. Peace is fragile. Our values are fragile. And if we want to maintain them in the upheavals of the century ahead, then they surely must be defended now and ensure that the lessons of the past are not forgotten. Thank you, Francis. Dom Nichols. Thanks. I just want to make a point I made some some months ago, actually, but it's, it's come back into to fresh light. And this was after Monday. So the Russian embassy here in the UK quoted, put out a tweet, quoting words I used in Monday's pod. And I, I think they tried to make a joke. It's not clear to me because my yardstick is that jokes are supposed to be funny so I'm still not not totally out on what they were trying to do but anyway I said I was delighted that they're listening hello comrades welcome just fill in at the back thank you I asked them if they would confirm that I'm I've been sanctioned by Russia because every time I ring them to ask they just hang up on me and um, I also asked them after our recent discussions on this pod whether um, whether they thought, where, where do they stand on whether or not I should interview Andre Kellin? But yeah, as I said, no response from the from the Russian embassy. But the point I'm making is that, that they blunder around the information flank of this war, but have shown yet again that they can't do irony. They can't do humour. So for all the folks out there listening to this who are feeling angry and frustrated, scared, disempowered... They have shown us, the Russian embassy here has shown us how you can uh, take action if you so wish. And that is by using humour. Retweet it, quote tweet it, engage with it. Don't fight nonsense with facts because those blows don't land. Fight their nonsense with humour and intelligence and wit and charm. All the, the humanity that, that I know you have and you demonstrate in your many, many messages to us here, for which we're always grateful. So stick with the humour and the irony, because they, they, they can't do it. And when they go low, we go high. Thank you, Francis. Thank you, Dom. Roland, any final thoughts from you? I personally think Britain should re-examine its, its, its national cult around Operation Chastise and the Dambusters Raid. I think that's legitimate. And I think... It was telling that, that Dan Snow, the historian, listed a huge number of, of broken dams in wars earlier in a thread today and, and how it causes suffering. He didn't mention dam busters at all, and I kind of suspect that's because it's a national cult here. And uncomfortable as it may be, I think, <laughs> I think it's worth re-examining those things uh, and look at that. It certainly makes me uncomfortable when we overlook those kinds of things. And even if it was a very long time ago, I'm not sure it really is a different world to be honest, although it is now the, the Geneva Conventions that ban that kind of thing obviously came in more recently. So just knowing, I, I, think, I think everybody should re-examine their national myths. That's my view on that. The second thing is, um, I'd like to echo what Oli says about the, the landscape down there and, and the environmental destruction. It really is a fantastically beautiful part of the world and we don't know how that's going to change over the next several years months and weeks and things but it is it is a is horrific to see that happening and, and the third thing she said really what we should all be focused on 
what the Russians should be focused on is just getting some kind of rescue effort into that left bank. I'm pretty sure the Russians are capable of it if they set their minds to it. Right now, really, one would hope that somebody, maybe the United Nations, I don't know who, is able to, to, to make some kind of contact over there and hope that happens because at the moment, just a one, one more thing, actually, from, from Natalia, who's been speaking to people in Leszki, um, I'll just quote it. A friend's godfather had an elderly grandma. They wanted to take her up to the cellar, but she was already dead. So, as we were saying earlier, there's been no official confirmation of casualties, but the casualties have happened. And as the waters recede, we're going to find out how many people died. Thank you very much, Roland. Yuri and Olia, as our guests, would you like the final thoughts? Uh, Yuri, if you're still there, would you like to go first? Yes, thank you very much. I really enjoyed listening to the previous speakers, everybody having a unity on the need for a stronger, a more global, a more united response. And this is indeed what we are in Ukraine looking for as well. Uh, signs of public support, statements of solidarity. This is all very dear and very important to the volunteers like us who are doing our work on the ground on a daily basis. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Yuri, for joining us. Olia Hercules. Just my my final thought is just to ask people to keep supporting us and not to forget. Because I, I, I honestly, I, I now believe after this happened that we are all in danger all over Europe and something needs to be done quick. And as Dom, I think, mentioned before, you know, it, it's a bully. And how do you, uh, uh, what do you do with a bully? Just think of even a three-year-old nose, just hit them on the nose really hard and they'll go away. And this is what needs to happen now. Otherwise, more disasters will happen. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles.